All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. and welcome back to Your Brain on Science. Oh. Today, Zarmin and I are going to be doing a little journal club of a new breaking article out of David Olson's lab. It's titled, Psychedelics Promote Neuroplasticity Through the Activation of Intracellular 5-HT2A, or Serotonin Receptors. Mm-hmm. This paper is kind of huge. Uh, it's come from a great lab that does great preclinical work, and we think that this could really be a cornerstone study in this field uh, moving forward. So let's just get right into it. Yep. Um, Okay, so to understand the background and the rationale of this study, I want us all to think back to the episodes that Elena and I did on plasticity, um, and specifically the neuroplastic hypothesis of psychedelic action. So just to remind us, this hypothesis posits that psychedelics have their therapeutic benefit um, through their action as drugs that induce plasticity. So plasticity being any change that makes the functional connections between cells stronger, so how they talk to each other, um, and and more efficient, right? Or physical changes, physical structural changes that the neurons can undergo themselves uh, to increase surface area, maybe the birth of new neurons, um, be able to contact other cells a little bit uh, more easily. Um, And also this happens bi-directionally. So there's going to be there can be the increase of all of this stuff and the creation of new neurons, neurogenesis and synaptogenesis and whatnot, but there can also be synaptic pruning. Um, and that's also adaptive, right? You want to be able to get, to those, get rid of those connections that are no longer serving you. So that's bidirectional. Um, but anyway, okay, so preclinical data shows us that the hallucinogenic action of psychedelics um, and their action as psychoplastogens, as the Olson lab is going to refer to them. Um, and also see our episode. I'm going to do that again. Okay. I added um, that, Yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> totally fine. Um, okay. Uh, preclinical data actually shows us that the hallucinogenic action of psychedelics and their action as psychoplastogens, as the Olson lab calls them. And again, go see our episode, uh, Elena's episode with Dr. Cameron. Super, super awesome. Um this is dependent on the action of the uh, serotonin 2A receptor. Uh, So that receptor is likely required for these outcomes based on all of the preclinical data that has come out thus far. Uh, The thing is, though, that psychedelics seem to produce all of these plastic and hallucinogenic effects, right, due to their action at this receptor. But serotonin, which is the original ligand for this receptor, the original, the OG, the endogenous ligand, right, doesn't have these hallucinogenic effects or these significant and acute and immediate long-lasting plastic effects. So how do you go about explaining this disconnect? Yeah, so that is something that has kind of honestly dumbfounded like scientists for a long time is like, okay, well, they're so structurally similar. So why is this happening, right? Why is serotonin not producing these same effects? Um, And so the authors bring up biased agonism, which is essentially the idea that different ligands or drugs or endogenous compounds, what have you, um, that activate the same receptor can induce different types of changes inside the cells after they bind. Um, So this has been shown with psychedelic signaling and 
the recruitment of like these little different messengers within the cell that can cause different downstream effects in cell signaling and in behavior. And this is also seen with other classes of drugs too, like opioids and their respective receptors. Um, however, this doesn't fully explain the results we see because serotonin is one, a full agonist at serotonin 2A receptors, whereas psychedelics are typically partial agonists. Mm. But it also seems to be pretty evenly activating and recruiting certain pathways as an endogenous compound. Um, so what the heck is going on? Yeah. So the authors note that one major difference between serotonin and psychedelics is that psychedelics are more lipophilic compounds, which means that they can passively diffuse across a lipid membrane, while serotonin cannot. And this is due to physiochemical properties of the uh, the different compounds themselves and, and specifically with serotonin. Um, so this naturally, I think, sort of leads to their hypothesis uh, that uh, serotonin and psychedelics may be having such differential effects due to some location bias, right? So psychedelics are able to access a location that serotonin is not, right? So that's what it seems to be one of those major differences. So perhaps these downstream differences arise from this location bias or this location specificity. So in this paper, what they do, they test to see whether activation of some intracellular population of serotonin 2A receptors is actually what's resulting in this acute plasticity, this long lasting plasticity, and this behavioral change that we see with psychedelics as opposed to just serotonin. Yeah, and before we get like into these results, uh, I think it's also important to note, give like a little bit of background mm -hmm. on like intracellular, extracellular, like how For these sure. receptors yeah. are sitting. Um, and so serotonin receptors and a lot of other receptors in your brain, um, but specifically we're going to talk about serotonin here. So serotonin 2A receptor is what's called a G protein coupled receptor. And they typically live on the membrane of the cells. They're membrane bound. They're embedded into it. And they have part of it where the ligand binds is on the extracellular side. And then the intracellular side is where all that downstream signaling happens. Mm -hmm. And so when these receptors get activated by an agonist like a psychedelic, they can be internalized afterwards, making them unavailable if more drug comes around. And this internalization means that they're now inside of the cell. They're no longer sitting atop that membrane. Um, and they end up in this little bubble, which is called an endosome. And so before this paper, and like still, obviously, but um, it's thought that these receptors are that end up inside of the cell cannot be activated or might be tagged for degradation or recycling. So the, the reason this paper is so fascinating is in the fact that it challenges that these receptors that have been internalized can still be signaling from inside the cell. They don't have to be on top of the cell. Yeah. And then they can have full, you know, physiological, biological effects by being inside, which really is. I'm so glad you went into that background. I'm like, super, super important. And part of the reason why this paper is as cool as it is, right? Yeah, they use like so many methods. And it's really cool how many different um, like cell types they use, like they use mm -hmm. rodent, like cortical cells, they use um, human embryonic kidney cells. So yeah, it's it's a lot. So we're just going to kind of weave it in for you guys. But so the first thing they did was replicate that yes, the tryptamines like 5-MeO-DMT do induce plasticity both structurally and functionally. Um, so they just want to know, you know, wanted to make sure that 
um, what they've seen before they can replicate solid. Um, so then they wanted to see how the structure of different psychedelics uh, promote neuronal growth. So they use different levels of N-methylation, um, which basically just makes the compounds more lipophilic. Uh, so like Zarmine um, mentioned, the one of the hypotheses between the serotonin versus psychedelics is that the psychedelics can get into the cell um, due to their more lipophilic structure. So mm -hmm. they wanted to see how changing this N-methylation makes it more likely for these compounds to diffuse across the lipid membrane. And so they did this by treating um, rat embryonic neurons. So they used serotonin, tryptamine, and 5-methoxytryptamine and the corresponding methylated counterparts um, and put them in the dish with these cells and then conduct what's called a shoal analysis where um, after you've treated the cells, you can image them and you basically draw a concentric circle on a field of view the neuron in the center and you can count how many times a neuronal process crosses the circle of interest. So this tells us about the structural changes in plasticity with, um, within a neuron. And so essentially all this to say that they found that by increasing the N-methylation, they increased the likeliness of the compounds to diffuse across the membrane and this resulted in an increased growth of neurons. Yeah. So now we see that with increasing lipophilicity, there is increased structural plasticity. So now we need to make sure that, you know, this is a result of the lipophilicity itself and not sort of an outcome of how effective the ligand was that was used um, to bind the 5-HT2A receptor. Okay, so now we see that with increasing lipophilicity, there is increased structural plasticity. We need to make sure that the result that we're seeing isn't a function of how effective the ligand that we were using uh, was binding to the 5-HT2A receptor. Uh, and so they indeed found that the receptor binding efficacy was not a significant factor or predictor of uh, plastic change uh, in the end. Um, in fact, they find a very interesting anti-correlation uh, with which I think some follow-up would be really, really great with. Uh, they use multiple assays to assess milling, like Brett, IP1, and Cyclite. Uh, and all of these are really, really cool, awesome, and sophisticated methods, a lot that I do not understand about them. Um, and sometimes they're a little bit confusing, so I didn't get too in-depth. But interestingly, they did also find a significant correlation between lipophilicity and structural plasticity. And this here is the key piece of information that led them to believe and further investigate if some intracellular pool of receptors, so receptors inside the lipid membrane, are actually the critical receptors that need to be activated uh, for this plastic change. And again, that behavioral change that they talked about in the beginning. So from here, the next step is to confirm and locate uh, that these intracellular receptors first exist and to where they exist, right, in relevant cell types. Uh, so to do this, they use human embryonic kidney cells and cortical neurons. And in these cells, they express a fluorescent 5-HT2A receptor protein so that once they image the cells, uh, they can actually locate these cells using fluorescence. Um, so they could locate these intracellular receptors that way. They use several different controls. And honestly, I think they did this in just such a well thought out way. Um, I think, I mean, we've been talking about it, but I think all of the methods here are done and controlled for so well. Um, and here we find that yes, there is significant co-localization of intracellular serotonin 2A receptors uh, in neurons. 
under very specific conditions. Um, and that there are differential location uh, localization patterns in other cell types. Okay. And that there are differential localization patterns in other cell types. Yeah. So super cool stuff. We got uh, some imaging, you know, in different cell types. I really like that they use, you know, hex cells and the and neurons. Yeah. Because, you know, it's good to look at the neurons in their own environment, not just like a transfected receptor so yeah super awesome so we're getting closer to rounding out the story and and it really is written like a story the paper i really enjoy yeah i it's so it's so nice when you get a paper like this because you want to keep reading right like one result <laughs> like leads into the next like you're having the same questions that they had and i think oh just like everyone needs to be able to write uh stories in science i think oh yeah <laughs> So yeah, now they know that, you know, compounds that are more easily crossing the membrane are more likely to induce this plasticity. They also know that there's intracellular serotonin 2A receptors um, along with extracellular 2A receptors. And so now they need to know if the psychedelic compounds are inducing plasticity by binding to these intracellular serotonin receptors and putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So how are they going to do this? Uh, so they modify DMT, psilocybin, and a non-hallucinogenic serotonin 2A antagonist, catanserin, making them impermeable. So um, they have their um, permeable compounds, DMT, psilocybin, catanserin, and then they modify them to make them unable to cross the membrane. Mm. Uh, so they took these um, rat cortical neurons and they treated them with the regular compounds or the compounds that remained to be membrane impermeable. And the regular compounds um, resulted in increased plasticity no matter the condition, but the membrane impermeable but the membrane <laughs> impermeable compounds only produce plasticity when applied at the same time as what um, they use this electroporation. So this essentially just creates tiny spaces in the membrane that allows the compounds to pass through. Um, so kind of building them a little tunnel through the membrane. Mm -hmm. And so what this result is suggesting is that the compounds need to be inside the cells to induce plasticity. So they need to be able to cross through. Um, what I found was interesting too about this particular set of experiments is that they show that the membrane impermeable catanserin was still able to block the effects of serotonin and the 5-MeO-DMT, but um, there was like, it wasn't a full blockade for mm -hmm. it, but it was still something. So I would really thought that um, it would be cool to get some more explanation on to why they think that this antagonist um, that's supposed to be membrane impermeable is still kind of getting in there and doing its thing, so... Yeah, like maybe more to come, right? For sure. Yeah. And I think I think uh work with catanserin is always so interesting because it remind it reminds us about the fact that all of these compounds are sort of partial partial agonists. And you know, this this points to the fact that intracellular receptors are, you know, that's sort of the punchline of this whole paper, super, super important, but extracellular receptors still exist, right? And they might still be playing a role because catanserin again is impermeable. Um, yeah, membrane. that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, okay, so now you have given us another huge piece of this puzzle and we sort of started to put it together. 
Um, but in the beginning, we talked about in the rationale uh, that the impetus of this paper was the differential effects of serotonin and, and psychedelic compounds, right? Despite acting at the 5-HT2A receptors. So could it be that serotonin on its own does not produce the same effects as these psychedelics because it does not access the pool of intracellular receptors that these psychedelics seem to be accessing? Um, well, that's exactly what they tested next. So to do this, they again use rat cortical embryonic cells, and then they electroporated them with a serotonin transport construct. So what this is going to do is this is going to get serotonin transporter inside of the cell. So it's going to become intracell intracellular. They then treated these cells that now have the serotonin transporter inside the cell with both the permeable and impermeable DMT. And they find that both cert positive or negative cells um, treated with the permeable DMT resulted in increased structural plasticity, um, but only resulted in increased plasticity with serotonin in the cert positive cells. So serotonin only caused a change in plasticity when the transporter, the serotonin transporter was inside of the cell. Yeah. So this is like suggesting, right, that um, serotonin needs to be moved. It needs to be taken up by something to mm -hmm. produce its effect. So super cool. So now they want to see if intracellular serotonin can induce structural plasticity in vivo. So in a living creature. Um, because it's great that you can show this in cells and everything and these constructs are working, but now what happens when you take it to something living? Um, so what they did is they inject this cert, um, so the serotonin transporter construct into the frontal cortex of a rodent. And then they can administer this serotonin releasing agent after, um, you know, the constructs um, express. So within a few weeks. And so then after they do this, they can image the spines 24 hours after they do the serotonin releasing agent administration. And they can find here that the um, cert positive animals, so the ones that had the construct, resulted in increased structural plasticity. And they also did a bunch of behavioral tests. Um, they did locomotion tests and then a forced swim task. Um, and then they also tested head twitch response. And so they looked um, at all of these and they found a significant reduction in immobility time in the forced swim test, but mm. um, no changes in locomotion. And they found increased head twitch after the initial injection of the releasing agent. What does this all mean? Um, broken down into one sentence. So essentially, these animals that received this serotonin transporter construct and the serotonin releasing agent, they had a reduction in immobility time and forced swim. So they have, quote, antidepressant-like, unquote, um, <laughs> results. And they increase head twitch like a normal, um, like psychedelic would do. So essentially, they've taken serotonin and they've made it similar to other psychedelics. Um, I just want to say, I said my little antidepressant-like thing. Mm -hmm. So something about this experiments is that I feel like with behavioral experiments, there's always this jump to go and characterize these antidepressant-like effects before characterizing, like, other behavior. And they did locomotion and head twitch here, which is really great. But I just feel like going straight to force swim without, like, any stress added, it's it's just really looking at unconditioned behavior of the animal. There's mm -hmm. nothing antidepressant-like about it. And they also look at immobility time in animals that have already undergone the force swim test before they got the serotonin-releasing agent. 
so this lack of like immobility and so like this increase in um like antidepressant like behavior it could just be because they learn that they're going to get taken out of the water (laughs) yeah yeah um, it's you know like adapting very much yeah and so I feel like there's also like other things with this test that you can look at like climbing and swimming yeah it takes a lot more time to analyze but I just would have liked to see maybe um and not just be immobility time, but maybe looking at climbing and swimming behavior as well, because that's going to show how active the animal really is. A hundred percent. And, you know, the force swim task is very controversial anyway. I just did my mm-hmm. one. And, yeah. you know, the force swim task is controversial anyway. So I think adding more tasks is sort of a basic next step and and you know here's hoping there are going to be next steps this is kind of a huge paper um and basically what we told you guys sums up the big results here um and these results can change the way that we look at the mechanism of these drugs you know this is kind of a huge deal um so now let's get into some things that we maybe like to things that could be better and also some considerations surrounding this paper and oh my god the way that it's being taken in media right now um but first Elena, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that I wanted to point out about this, and I think some other people online have noted as well, is the the age, I guess, of their cortical neurons that they're using. So mm-hmm. in the beginning figures, they are using days in vitro six. So basically, they did the cell culture with these embryonic um, neurons, and then they let them grow in dish for six days. So these aren't really, I guess, like full neurons at this day um they're not mature so this could kind of mm-hmm. confound this like plasticity right because if these cells are still maturing anyway and growing new spines then um what is the plasticity we're seeing because of just that? developmental and yeah. supposed to be happening yeah exactly there's only one other experiment where they note that they use the day 15 cells so it's i'm just like maybe use the same consistently right like yeah yeah and they they um take the embryonic cells at embryonic day 18 which is very like consistent across literature so that's cool but i did want to note that like i've seen a lot of papers that they typically use days in vitro like 15 to 21 um because Mm -hmm. that's technically like a more mature cell so I'd, i'd be interested in seeing you know what these results look like in a more mature cell across the board and I'd also want to see more work done, like, in vivo in, and in tissue and with other I compounds. I know. Yep. Right? Because yep. when you think about it, there's no mention of LSD or lyceride in the paper, which is a psychedelic and a non-psychedelic. So how do you think, like, these would look in this kind of methodology? Yep. Yeah, I agree. I One of the biggest things for me is that all of this was, almost all of this, right, if, with, with the exception of that one in vivo MPFC uh, viral injection in the end, um, everything was in vitro. It was all in cells in a dish. And this is all very, very interesting and some amazing mechanistic work that would be very hard to do, admittedly, right, in animals where the whole rest of the biological sort of landscape exists. Um, but I think that's the next big step, right? Like we need to see if mm-hmm. these changes are conserved when the all the rest of the system also exists, which you can get with, you know, cortical neurons and the embryonic cells that they use here um, to some level. But again, these are cells isolated in a dish. So that yeah. is always, always, always one of my, um, one of my things. And hopefully that is next here. 
Yeah, and I and I know there's like some stuff you can do with like ex vivos, like tissue slices and stuff. Yes, yep. Um, where you can do like localization experiments, and so I'm really excited to kind of see that kind of research also come up because that's like, you know, in a whole brain system. So yeah, yeah. Also, do you know? I don't know the answer to this. I'm not sure, but have other groups replicated like the cyclite data? Have other or other dude? People, this like, was actually data? so. This was actually my first time coming across this technique and like this data and of this way of sort of gathering data. Um, so it was very, very interesting to me. I looked up a few other papers to try to understand it better, but um, I have not. Yeah, because I know no. like the Olsen lab like developed the cyclite thing. And so yeah. one and two, I was just curious if there's any other research groups that have um, looked to like replicate it. I know ours yeah. haven't, so. Yeah, so there you go. That's another thing, right? Not this hasn't this... replicated, but hasn't tried. Hasn't tried, tried it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is also, a you know, a much newer technique and a method that we haven't seen before. A lot of us aren't familiar with before. So that's also something to keep in mind, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So these findings are all super, super interesting and intriguing. Um, but I also think that this is really interesting because others have shown intracellular 5-HT2A receptors before, right? Um, so for example, like 5-HT2A receptors are localized intracellularly uh, and in complex with PSD95, so postsynaptic density protein 95 um, at synapses and neurons. Um, and they've actually been shown in vivo at the synapse to be associated with uh, spines where they interact with PDZ domain proteins. Um, and these are all key in the psychedelic effect. So this is something that we've seen before, but um, I think at this level, it's a little bit, a little yeah. bit different. <laughs> yeah, it's different methodologies, you know, and it's cool yeah. to see, like, we've shown it at the synapse uh, before, but this is like with the context of psychedelics and this lip of this lipophilic like concept so that's pretty cool and i know like my lab has previously shown that like with heteromization of these g protein coupled receptor receptors specifically the serotonin 2a receptor this can also cause changes in receptor localization trafficking and alters how these receptors interact with each other in the cell environment um, and with compounds endogenous and ex exogenous you know mm -hmm. so um, just things to keep in mind that this work is ongoing and it's really, really cool. There's a lot of groups um, working to figure it out. Yeah. So overall, we think a really great hypothesis driven paper uh, with some amazing, amazing controls and good stats. <laughs> um, it's going to be very interesting to see if this work is replicated in the coming years. Um, and it really is, I think, going to change some of the ways that we think about mechanism and, and the mechanism of psychedelics and, and maybe even other drugs, you know, who knows? This is, I think, a, a crazy finding um, and is going to affect sort of everyone's work as it as we as we move on in this field. Yes, of course. And lastly, I just wanted to note, um, oh. you know, us in the spirit of clear scientific communication. Um, I don't know if you saw this, Zarmin, but there was yes, a, yes, a yes, bunch yes. of articles coming out about this paper, some great, some not so great. Um, so I just wanted to highlight the issue of spreading false information, even by accident or on purpose through the hype cycle. And there's an article on Twitter. Um, and before I say this, I would just like to note uh, check our disclaimer. This is all our opinion. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so one article from Microdose HQ claims, um, and I'm 
literally quoting their tweet here. Um, a new study shows that traditional serotonin-based SSRIs, the current treatment mode for many mental health conditions, don't pass neural cell membranes and do not induce plasticity, explaining why SSRIs are largely ineffective for so many patients, end quote. This is, you just heard us talk about this paper, right? Yeah. This is literally not what this paper was about at all. Like, there was one mention of SSRIs in the discussion. <laughs> and I also quote, in the discussion they said, the antidepressant mechanisms of ketamine and SSRIs have not been definitively established. It is intriguing to speculate that they also might promote cortical neuron growth by binding to intracellular targets. End quote. So think about that and think about what you're reading. Please, like, please. Like, what an interesting paper this was. And here I am fully admitting that a lot of these methods are complicated to me and confusing to me, but I'm still not sitting here making these crazy claims that I don't understand or can back up, right? Like, that, like, what a large leap. I think it's just be careful with the way that you talk about data that comes out. And it's, you know, it's so exciting. It is really, really cool when you have an idea and perhaps like you have a, a line of thinking that you want to think about and pursue and, and look into. By all means, look into it, but be very careful with statements that you're making to other people, you know, especially if you're in a position to be um, respected and understood and listened to, you know, that's when it becomes the most important to think about what you're saying is when, you know, people are listening. So, um, and this this goes for right not only um, the news media. This goes for us. This goes 100%. for the authors of these papers too, mm-hmm. of not making you know giant leaps and ensure like the title of this paper. Right, it's it's pretty like you know straightforward. But some would argue that they're saying that like this is the mechanism now, and I've seen it also interpreted as like intracellular serotonin 2 receptors are the mechanism of psychedelics but like we don't actually know that yeah, yeah that's like for sure also extracellular receptors have been shown again and again to be activated by psychedelics so it's not a one or the other it's just we're learning more we're adding information into the world like to do with what we will but yeah. just think critically about it so exciting um and with that you know i hope we have more and more uh, stuff that comes out just like this that challenges the current uh, sort of face of the field. And this might be, who knows, the lipophilicity hypothesis of psychedelic mechanisms. I don't know. I really love that word lipophilic and lipophilicity. I'll keep saying it all day today. But anyway, (laughs) anyway, guys, thank you so much for sticking with us all the way to the end. Um, We've had some really, really great episodes this season and we have some crazy things in store for you guys coming up very soon. Um, So please subscribe, uh, engage with us. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. We love all types of feedback and uh, good to talk to you. Good to talk at you. Yeah, thanks, everybody.